Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good day. Welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel on New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel, and today we are pleased to have with us Mr. Philip Snow. Mr. Snow is a widely regarded expert on Chinese international relations. He has written several books, including The Fall of Hong Kong and The Star Raft. He is also the son of the famous novelist and writer Lord Snow, and today we are discussing his newest book, China and Russia, Four Centuries of Conflict and Concord, published by Yale University Press. Welcome, Mr. Snow. Thank you very much. Mr. Snow, what is the thesis of your book? My thesis is actually very simple. China and Russia today constitute a formidable combination, an alliance in all but name. It's near alliance. It's product of a long succession of ups and downs, going back to the times of the late Ming Dynasty in the 17th century. It's unlikely to last forever, but nor is it likely to disintegrate any time soon. And whichever direction it takes will have major repercussions for the rest of the world. When and why did you first become interested in Sino-Russian relations? My interest has its roots in some rather unusual boyhood experiences. My parents were novelists widely read in both the United States and the Soviet Union. They believed very sincerely at the height of the Cold War that they could play a useful role building bridges between the literary communities in both countries, at least attempting to persuade each side that not everyone on the other side had fallen details. As part of this endeavor, they traveled to Russia a number of times in the 1960s and early 1970s as guests of the Soviet Writers' Union meeting a wide range of literary figures from diehard Stalinist, liberal, and eventual dissidents. And I traveled with them, obtaining a glimpse of Soviet society at this highly rarefied level, and visiting a number of far-flung regions, including Siberia, the Soviet Far East, and the Central Asian Stan. Back at school, I built on these activities by embarking on a Russian language course. In the meantime, however, my attention has also been captured 
by the other great pariah country, the People's Republic of China, which was just then emerging from the isolation of the Cultural Revolution and beginning to engage once again with the outside world. At Oxford, I took a degree in Chinese, which I was then able to turn to some practical use by working successively in a trade promotion capacity for the Sino-British Trade Council and the First National Bank of Chicago. This activity enabled me to get an equally striking glimpse of China in the early post-Mao years. As the country shifted under the leadership of Deng Xiaoping, to a dynamic new policy and economic experiment. Back in 1974, as part of my Chinese degree course, I'd spent several months at a language center attached to Nanyang University in Singapore to upgrade my spoken Mandarin, where I ran unexpectedly into a team of Soviet students who were there with the same objective. Unable to go to Beijing at a time when Sino-Soviet relations were icy, or to Taiwan in the absence of diplomatic ties, barred from Hong Kong by the British anxiety to avoid upsetting the Chinese mainland, they headed to Singapore as the only Chinese-speaking territory open to them. And this surprising encounter sparked in me an interest in the interaction between Russia and China, which I've retained ever since. Uh, what were the relations between Tsarist Russia and Ming China? Pretty minimal. From the mid-16th century, Russia was gradually stirred to an interest in China by the agitation of particularly English traders who fought to cross through Russian lands on the way to the Chinese Empire, an interest which grew as the Russians began to expand eastwards into Siberia. In 1618, an exploratory party led by an official named Ivan Pitsin set out from the new Siberian settlement of Tomsk and made their way through Mongolian territory to the main dynasty capital of Beijing. The party immediately ran into protocol difficulties, informed by the main court that they couldn't be received by the Emperor Wan Li because they hadn't brought him any gifts. The whole attitude of the court turned out to be deeply introverted. A letter issued to the party on behalf of the Emperor was couched in amiable terms. But exhibited no desire to reciprocate Russian interests, merely inviting the Muscovite ruler to bring the best you have, and I, in return, will make you a present of good silk stuff, slotting the Russians, in other words, into the long-established imperial tribute system. The letter was delivered to Moscow, but no one could be found to translate it, and it languished untranslated in the Russian archives for the next fifty years. Perhaps it's no accident that he typed say a grammata. A Chinese document is the Russian expression the double Dutch. And how, if at all, did relations change with the rise of the Manchu? With the Manchu conquest of China and the establishment of the Qing dynasty in 1644, the Chinese Empire fell into the hands of a non-Chinese ruling caste, and the result was that Beijing started looking at foreigners through rather different eyes. Russian embassies began to arrive in the Chinese capital seeking trade from the 1650s onwards, continued to meet with obstruction over protocol issues. But in September, we find signs of what one Western historian has labeled barbarian fascism. In 1676, for example, the negotiations with one Russian embassy were breaking down over the ambassador's insistence that the Tsar's letter had to be received by the Qing Emperor and no one else, the Emperor Kangxi, or auditing diplomat, could search through the old Chinese records to see if there was any precedent for the monarch receiving a foreign embassy's credentials in person. 
and clearly most inclined to do so. A compromise was eventually reached, under which the ambassador placed the Tsar Nesari gifts for special people, to be picked up by a senior counsellor on the Emperor's behalf. As time went on, Kanxi even showed himself willing to make a significant break with the traditional Chinese posture of inferiority. In terms of certain strategic ends, in the midst of teenagers, his forces defeated and continually Cossack settlers who had been trying to establish themselves in the Amur Valley on China's northeastern fringe. But instead of simply wiping out the defeated Cossacks, he decided to draw Moscow into diplomatic talks, partly to avoid incessant border conflicts and partly to secure at least for a neutrality in a major confrontation which was brewing between the Empire and an aggressive Mongol power which was taking shape to China's west. The result was the conclusion in 1689 of the city of Yevchinsk, the first city ever been negotiated by a Chinese government of the state on a proximity of Telemines, also held on the Amur frontier rather than in Beijing. The senior team representatives were all Manchu, not Chinese. The text of the treaty is drawn up with the help of the dynasty of Jesuit advisors in Manchu, Russian, and Latin, but not in Chinese. The Cossacks were obliged to withdraw from the Amur Valley. But in return, Russian merchants were given the permission they did on across the border to trade in the Chinese capital. Would it be true to say that until the second quarter of the 19th century, that the relations between the two empires were of a amicable sort? with the Manchu in a slightly superior position. Broadly, yes. There was a period of seven years in the mid-18th century when the Russian advanced to the east and the Manchu advanced to the west, like resulting in a collision between the two powers in Central Asia and along the Siberian frontier with Mongolia, now Manchu controlled. In the late 18th century, regular trade which had been instituted at the Russo-Mongolian border post of Chakta was suspended a number of times, as the Qing courts reacted to duty to debit without their consent by the Russian authorities, and to various misdemeanors committed by individual Russians. Nonetheless, it's worth noting that for over 150 years following the Treaty of Nerpsinx, no armed conflict took place between the two empires, with each apparently fearful of the nation's power of the other. In military terms, the Russians were actually catch catching up fast with their Qing neighbors. By 1757, the Russian armies had field guns, while in 1840, Qing forces were still largely reliant on dated weaponry and bows and arrows. But as late as 1850, the veteran Tsarist foreign minister, Count Karl von Eppelwood, still continued on of extreme danger from China. Starting in 1715, the Tsarist government was even able to maintain the Russian ecclesiastical mission in Beijing, which slowly succeeded in winning the tolerance and respect of the touching authorities. And from 1825, East Russian Orthodox priests actually found themselves the only Europeans to meet in the Chinese capital, where they impressed the Qing court with their medical skills and their portrait painting, while quietly pursuing informal, diplomatic, and intelligent functions. Relations changed so drastically after the 1840s. The relationship changed rapidly in the mid-19th century as the Russians reacted to the breakthrough into China made by the West. Following Russia's defeat of the Qing in the First Opium War, which was 1839-42, to 
And the subsequent opening up of the Chinese treaty ports, large amounts of high-quality, low-cost British and other Western goods began pouring into China. By the mid-1840s, the Russian troops in Beijing were reporting to St. Petersburg how British copying was selling Russian competition out of the market. And grave fears were entertained to the future of the Kyakhtar trade. But at the same time, it had become apparent that the Qing were no longer the formidable military opponents that old-timers like Nesselrode had feared, and that legions of Chinese troops scattered at the laying of a northern horse. The defeat which Russia had sustained at the hands of Britain and France in the Crimean War of 1854-56 led a number of Tsarist policymakers to hanker after new activities in the East to offset their humiliation in Europe. And the first onslaught on China was launched by Britain and France in the Second Opium War of the late 1850s gave the Tsarist government cover to pursue their own expansionist agenda. How did the Manchu react to the initial Russian encroachments? On the face of it, you might expect the Qing government to have been devastated by the Russian The territory sometimes referred to as Outer Manchuria that was extracted by Tsarist Russia from the Qing under the treaties of 1858-60 is vastly larger than any territorial acquisitions made at this period by the British and French. It was, in fact, well the larger the France and Germany put together. A further 500,000 square kilometers were detached by the Russians in the Qing dominions in Central Asia and formed part of present-day Kazakhstan. The Tsarist diplomats were able to draw on their country's nearly 200-year experience of dealing with China to combine their landgrab with what I would call an avuncular policy, the approach of a benevolent uncle, offering to mediate for the Qing with the two Western powers and even drawing up to their benefit a seriously modern-sounding package of military aid, putting them to be the colossal Taiping rebellion that was raging in their foreign provinces. The Qing government weren't taken in by these grandishments. Already by 1857, they had appeared that the Russians were hoping to mediate the position of neutrality in order to obtain contestation. Prince Gung, who headed the Manchu team in the negotiation of 1860, expressed his opinion that all of the barbarians had the nature of brief beasts, the British of the most unruly, but the Russians of the most cunning. Yet the king was to a certain extent won over by the Russian avuncular treatment. In the first place, after nearly 200 years, they come to view the Russians as a familiar part of the scenery. The devil they knew, by comparison with the British and French, he built the landscape like the extraterrestrial. In addition, British territorial gains against their ruler were all being made of the remote and sparsely populated fringes of their empire, whereas the Western powers were aiming straight at the empire's heart, setting out to secure the diplomatic and commercial presence in Beijing and the rest of the major cities in the Chinese interior. In November 1860, Prince ended up by accepting the Russian offer to provide arms and military training at the old trading entrepot. Why did Russia's China policy fail to deliver in the lead-up to the Russo-Japanese War? Because the Russians had failed. Right up to the mid-1890s, the Tsarist government had maintained their avuncular posture, offering themselves as champions of the Qing dynasty against the worsening depredation of the other great powers. In 1894-95, for example, when Han attacked China, 
and occupied the Dalgong Peninsula in southern Manchuria, he largely put up a triple intervention by Russia, France, and Germany, who successfully advised Japan to withdraw from the territory of the sea. In 1896, the Tsar's Minister, Sankt Kautz, gave a secret treaty of alliance with the king, under which Russia would help the king's forces in the event of any further regression by the Japanese. As part of the deal, Russia won team permission to build the Chinese East Sea Railway, a line to give the Hulk-Sea Trans-Siberian Network a shortcut through Manchuria towards the Gulf. And would incidentally also give Russia a vertical monopoly of the local Manchurian economy. But all this time, pressure was mounting in various government circles. Among officials who were discontented with this balanced approach, and faulted their country to hurry to catch up with the other big powers in a scramble for conflict in spheres of influence. The watchword was said to be, Mount of Yacht, we must take in the winter of 1998. The older version of policy was finally given up as the Tsarist naval squadron, without any attempt to consult the Beijing authorities, sailed to the Laodong Peninsula and occupied the king naval base of Port Arthur and the port of Dalian. Thereby seizing precisely the same segment of northeast China they liberated from the Japanese just three years before. The result was that the king's accepting valid Russia now became openly hostile. In the summer of 1900, CW was set on to attack the unfinished Chinese railway in support of the anti-foreign Boxer Rebellion. The Russians responded by sending a hundred thousand strong army to occupy the whole of Manchuria. But their ensuing rule was begettled by a stubborn Chinese guerrilla resistance, which lasted until at least the beginning of 1903. And while the king court stayed officially neutral when the Japanese launched their all-out attack on Russian power in Manchuria in 1904-5, Chinese society seemed largely to sympathize with Japan and Chinese villages in the war zone and said to have given shelter and information the Japanese How did Tsarist Russia react to the fall of the Manchu in 1911? Basically, as a new opportunity. In spite of their shattering feet in Manchuria, the Tsarist government still hadn't abandoned their hopes of expanding their influence in the Russo-Chinese borderlands. Tsarist interest was now increasingly focused on Mongolia, where the local population had grown increasingly restive of both Manchu taxes and the exploitative demands of Chinese money lenders, and Russian appetites had been whetted by the region's huge resources of gold and iron. After the Qing dynasty fell, the outer Mongolian princes struck out for full independence from China, arguing that while there might have been a logical place for them in the multicultural Manchu Empire, they could scarcely be, accept, be accept, expected to accept transformation into a mere province of an ethnic Chinese republic. And the people who publicly government who'd taken power in Beijing weren't yet in any position to crack down on them. Four years of Tsarist diplomacy culminated in June 1915 in the conclusion of a Chinese-Russian-Mongolian treaty through which Alta Mongolia would become an autonomous region of the nominal Chinese sovereignty. For all practical purposes, a large chunk of the former Manchu dominion had been bitten away. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. 
From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. How do the Chinese react to the fall of czarist Russia and the rise of the Bolsheviks? In a different manner, in different places. In North China, the various warlord regimes which are taking shape seized the chance to claw back control of those parts of the borderlands which have been brought under Tsarist overlordship in the past two decades. So, for example, the celebrated Manchurian warlord, Jan Bolin, took over the Harbin, the Russian boomtown which had grown up around the headquarters of the Chinese Eastern Railway, leading Harper's Magazine to observe with dismay that Harbin had become the only white city in the world ruled by yellows. While a second lesser warlord marched into outer Mongolia, where he proclaimed the annulment of the June 1915 treaty and reimposed Chinese rule. In Shanghai and the South, however, where more radical forces were gathered, Chinese attention was focused on the emergence of a new and apparently sympathetic Russia in the form of the Bolsheviks. The nationalist party, who established themselves in Guangzhou under the leadership of Sun Yat-sen, perceived Soviet Russia as a power which might support their efforts to reunify China and rid it of the Western-backed warlords, while the tiny Chinese Communist Party, which would be prodded by the Bolsheviks into alliance with the nationalists, were enthralled by what they saw as the emergence in Russia of a new civilization based upon social justice. As the alliance developed, however, both the two Chinese parties began to exhibit a growing unease with their Soviet patrons. The city mercy, landowners, army officers, who made up the bulk of the nationalist movement, were deeply suspicious of Soviet communism. While the Chinese communists were resentful at having been pitched into an alliance with the nationalists in the first place, by both nationalists and communists, detected behind the warm embrace of the Bolshevik Kremlin a continued pursuit of the Tsarist expansionist goals, generous promises made to the Chinese people by the new Bolshevik leaders in 1919 regarding the ownership of the Chinese Eastern Railway and other issues, were mysteriously retracted the following year. And in June 1921, the Red Army marched in and installed the pro-Soviet government in outer Mongolia, in effect reinstating the previous arrangement under which Mongolia remained nominally part of China, but it became, it became in reality a Russian-guided autonomous state. In December 1923, four disgruntled Chinese communist students wrote a letter addressed to a Soviet emissary in Beijing denouncing the secret plan for both the Chinese Eastern Railway and Mongolia, and even accusing him of intrigue with the Northern Warlords, the Chinese dogs he feed, making use of their rapid barking. Why was Stalin so important a factor in 20th century Chinese history? Because he was able to use his role as the Soviet strongman to manipulate the emerging political forces in China for a period of almost 30 years. In the mid-1920s, he oversaw the creation of the Nationalist Communist United Front, sending Soviet advisors to micromanage both parties and to create the National Revolutionary Army, which eventually overthrew the warlord regimes in North China in 1926-28. This experiment ended in disaster in 1927, when Chiang kai and the Nationalists rounded on both the Chinese Communists and their Soviet backing. But partly turning his back on the new Chinese Nationalist government, Stalin worked to rebuild ties with them and supported them consistently for the next two decades 
His objective from this point on was exclusively to ensure the strategic security of the Soviet Union, which was increasingly threatened by Japan on its eastern flank, and he regarded the nationalists as the only political force in China strong enough to serve Moscow as an alliance, as an ally, against the Japanese menace. When the Japanese embarked on their all-out invasion of China in 1937-38, Stalin's massacre season to gang regime of war credits, armaments, pilots, and military advisors is still taking slightly part in averting a nationalist collapse in the first two years of the Sino-Japanese conflict. Diverting Japanese attention in the Soviet Far East in Siberia, and enabling the Kremlin, as it were, to fight Japan to the last Chinese. In 1943, the United States military presence in China took the place of Japan as the focus of Stalin's strategic anxiety, but once again he sought to enlist the cooperation of Chinese nationalist government, offering help with the economic development of Xinjiang and Manchuria, or conditioning that not a single American soldier remained on Chinese soil. The corollary was that the Chinese Communist Party were left consistently on the back burner. From the mid-1930s onwards, they were under steady Soviet pressure to form a second United Front with their nationalist enemies. And in December 1936, following the kidnapping of Deng Haishe by the Grumpian military chief Xi Jinping, Stalin actually intervened to prevent the Chinese communists taking delivery of Jiang to trial and execution. In 1945, the Soviet leader forced Mao Zedong to enter into peace talks with Jiang in Chongqing. And it was only in 1946-7 that Stalin at last began to throw his weight behind the communists, equipping them with the enormous supplies of heavy weaponry, which made it possible for them to overwhelm the nationalists in the final years of the Chinese Civil War. After the establishment of the People's Republic of China in 1949, Stalin again used the Soviet Union's dominant role as the Ministry of Economic Mainstay of the UCCPW to pressurize Mao and his colleagues to send the People's Liberation Army across the border into Korea to rescue Kim Il-sung's regime from collapsing in the face of the United States United Nations defenses, once again keeping his armies well out of the conflict and enabling the Soviet Union to fight the United States to the last Chinese. How did Moscow react to the rise of Mao? One of the earliest Soviet reports on Mao Zedong depicted him as a troublemaker. In September 1927, declining to take part in a foolhardy urban insurrection which the Communist International, the Comintern, had decreed to take place in Changsha, he led a small contingent of Hunanese troops into the Jingdao Mountains on the border between Hunan and Jiangxi provinces, where he aimed to establish a defensible CCP base. The Comintern agents in Changsha, a certain Vladimir Kuchur, denounced him for exceptionally shameful behavior and cowardice. An attempt was made to track him down and bring him back to Moscow to be tried for military opportunity. But Mao in the Jingdao Mountains was beyond Moscow's reach. From November 1931, when Mao was elevated to the post of chairman of the first Chinese Soviet Republic set up in Jiangxi, he came under constant fire in the young Chinese Stalinist who'd been sent from Moscow to head the underground CCP leadership in Shanghai. The Comintern, however, stepped in prevent him being expelled from the party for insubordination. The consensus in Moscow was that Mao was indeed insubordinate, but he was also a winner. A party driven home in 1935-36, when he led the CCP to their successful completion of the Long March. In November 1937, 
been a firing CCP leader who'd been living in exile in Moscow, Wang Ming, a dispatched by Stalin in the UCCP base in Yan'an. To impress the Chinese party bosses, it is the distance of the need for a second nationalist communist united front against Japan. But even then, he is said to have been reminded by the Comintern that he should behave modestly and that the leader of the CCP, Mao Zedong, and not Yi, the underlying Soviet attitude to the CCP Germany, remained, however, one of the suspicious. Soviet observers deployed at Yan'an in the early to mid-1940s were well aware of the anti-Soviet nature of the German rectification campaign. What kind of person is this Mao Zedong? Stalin said to him, grumbled to his credit. I don't know anything about him. He'd never been to the Soviet Union. And in January 1949, on the eve of the CCP's victory in the Civil War, the Soviet Politburo member, Anastasiyev from Bayan, was sent to China to give his colleagues a first close-up view of the CCP chief. Mikhail returned home, unimpressed by Mao's efforts to present himself as Stalin's faithful disciple. This was not upon what the Dung did in reality, nor to what he thinks about himself. In December 1949, when Mao finally became to Moscow in his capacity as leader, leader of the new Book Republic of China, his schemes were said to have been relieved by the AKDD and analyzed in the insights they might supposedly give into his character. And Stalin on several occasions showed a distinct preference to the chairman's more pliable deputy, Liu Xiaoqi. What explains the Sino-Soviet split? At the most basic level, the stitch arose from the Chinese desire to be rid of the Soviet chief of it. As early as 1953, following Stalin's death, some of the CCP leaders are said to have declared to a Soviet interpreter, now that Stalin is dead, the leader of the international revolution in Rupert is Mao Zedong, and the CCP's assertion of independence progressed in the following years past such milestones as Mao's critical response to Nikita Khrushchev's denunciation of Stalin in the secret speech of February 1956, the CCP's claims to have outstripped the Soviet Union in the quest of socialist modernity through the Great Leap Forward and the People's Commune, and the doctrinal polemics which raged between 1960 and 1954 over such issues as the feasibility of the parliamentary vote in socialism and the Soviet tilt towards the bourgeois Indian government in the Sino Indian border war. Many years later, Deng Xiaoping who served as the CCP's leading spokesman in the course of these ideological wrangles, conceded that they'd been largely hot air, and the Chinese themselves now believe that their position would always be the right one. The main fault of the Soviets, he declared, had lain not in their doctrine, but in their failure to treat the Chinese as equals. How did Moscow react to Mao's Cultural Revolution? With acute fear. The Soviet embassy in Beijing at its start the couple of Soviet merchantmen were among the main targets of Red Guard xenophobia, and the Maoist successes were widely seen as the prelude to a massive invasion of Russia itself. The Mongol occupation of the 13th to 15th centuries had left deep scars on the Russian psyche, and not everyone bothered to make the ethnic distinction between Mongols and Chinese. At the top of the Soviet hierarchy, Leonid Brezhnev had no doubt that Mao was a maniac and his apprehensions were widely shared by intellectuals and ordinary citizens detached from or even opposed to the Soviet regime. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, for example, warned that war with China is bound to cost us 60 million people at the very least, or our finest imperialist people are bound to perish. One piece of black humor predicted, 21st century radio bulletin, 
all quiet on the phone and finished border. What caused the outbreak of hostilities in 1969 between the two powers? Starting in 1967, the CCP gradually worked into their quarrel with Moscow, a number of territorial grievances relating to their shared borderline. And from 1960, they were expressing their discontent in the form of physical demonstrations. Groups of fishermen in Manchuria or Shepardi Xinjiang would cross the existing frontiers and refuse to be moved. And Chinese border guards would deliver themselves a verbal protest and engage in bouts of pushing and shoving with their Soviet counterparts. As the Cultural Revolution boiled over, these more or less performances began to take on an uglier and less predictable shape. Tensions mounted in particular the were disputed islets in the Amur River, known to the Russians of Zamansky and the Chinese of Zhengdao, where in the last days of the, 1968, Soviet and Chinese border guards fought a vicious skirmish with sticks and clubs. Mao apparently made up his mind that this was the place to stage a significant onslaught, and on March 2nd, 1969, a specially trained unit of 300 People's Liberation Army soldiers who'd been smuggled onto the island the previous night opened fire on the Soviet border guards at point-blank range. The Soviet commander was killed, along with 30 of his men, leading the Kremlin to retaliate two weeks later with a massive counter-attack by several thousand troops equipped with tanks, artillery, aircraft and missiles. Mel's gambit may in fact have been launched primarily for Chinese domestic purposes. By 1969, the chairman was concerned to rein in the Red Guards, whose excessive to be making China ungovernable, and to restore order with the help of the PLA. A short, successful attack on an isolated Soviet border post would boost the PLA's prestige, divert public attention away from the internal turmoil, and enable Mao to declare the Cultural Revolution over at the forthcoming 9th Congress of the CCP. Mao apparently having bargained for the scale of the Soviet retaliation which left him sufficiently shaken to issue an order. We should stop here, do not fight any more. By April, he seemed, however, to have recovered his nerve, and the pattern of Chinese provocations and Soviet counter-strike persisted through the summer on both the Manchuria and Xinjiang frontiers, as the two powers seemed to peep perilously on the verge of the nuclear war. How did Moscow react? to the initial changes in Chinese economic policies in the late 1970s, early 1980s. During the first few years after Mao died, Soviet ties with China appeared to have been still too limited to permit any rapid appreciation of the spectacular shift towards the market economy that had begun to take place under the leadership of Deng Xiaoping. The PRC seemed most likely to shift from Stalinist economics to some more liberal version of the Soviet system and the movement had even been launched throughout China to study the works of Nikolai Bukharin, the former champion of the new economic policy pursued by the Soviet government from 1921 to 1928. In the early 1980s, as the two powers slowly began to move towards normalizing their political relations, the Soviet assumption seemed to be that the PRC would slip back into its old role as the economic disciple of the Soviet big brother. Ivanov Hikov, he served as the chief economic advisor of the Chinese government, for most of the 1950s, was dispatched to the PRC in December 1984 on an ice-breaking visit, with an offer to help with the renovation of 17 industrial plants which Soviet engineers had constructed 30 years before. Archipop, however, was not unobservant. Taken to visit the Special Economic Zone, 
which the DCP has set up in Shenzhen to boost exports and attract foreign investment, in an area which had been a muddy village a few years earlier, he could not, his host noted, help marveling at what the Chinese had accomplished. And Otto revealed his disagreement, he felt his dissatisfaction with the current situation in the Soviet Union. Two years later, in 1986, the new Soviet ambassador to Beijing, was instructed to follow China's economic reforms with attention, and in particular those aspects which might be of interest to the USSR. On arriving at his post, Trianovsky observed that the Chinese had made a full-blooded start on reforms, one of the last people they tinkering, one might say I think converted to a new face. Two years after that, Chinese were drawn up in Moscow for Soviet Shenzhen to be founded in the Soviet Far East and the force of Makhodka is designated a free economic zone. It's the first step in China's transformation into a junior to the senior partner in the Sino-Russian relationship. What did Deng Xiaoping think of Mikhail Gorbachev? He thought he was an idiot. From Deng's point of view, it was sheer stupidity for a communist leader to embark on economic reform without at the same time taking steps to maintain the party's political grip. Deng's judgment seemed fully borne out when Gorbachev's blasphemous experiment ended in the collapse of the Soviet Union, while his own ruthless crushing of the Tiananmen protest secured the rule of the CCP for another generation. But Gorbachev always maintained that in Soviet circumstances it would have been impossible to liberalize the economy while still leaving the political lid on. How good or bad were Sino-Russian relations in the Yeltsin period? Following the collapse of the Soviet Union at the end of 1991, the initial relations between the post-Soviet government and Boris Yeltsin and the CCP in Beijing were predictably wary. One of Yeltsin's chief lieutenants, Yegor Gaidar, who was heading the drive to westernize the Russian economy, dismissed China as a dangerous and useless neighbor, while Yeltsin was stigmatized in Beijing as an anti-communist and a traitor. Within no more of the year, though, the two paths were drawing closer together again. In December 1992, Yeltsin played a visit to the Chinese capital, where he signed a joint declaration with the PCP leadership affirming that China and Russia were friendly countries. The two governments found out quickly that they got off increasingly better without necessary ideology. On a personal level, the boisterous Yeltsin himself was done to other extrovert successor during the win. And from 1996, the two leaders exchanged visits annually, while the friendly relationship was upgraded to a constructive and later to a strategic partnership. Times were cemented in part by a huge Chinese appetite for Russian arms, which in turn is said to have been crucial for Russia's short-term survival as an industrial power in the post-Soviet chaos. In the mid-1990s, the Beijing government were beginning to look to Russia to help lead their exponentially growing demand for oil and gas, while Chinese traders crossed into the Russian Far East to supply food and clothing to the local population, they'd been left destitute by the breakdown of their transportation links with European Russia. But most of all, the two powers were drawn together by the perceived antagonism of the West. The Russian leadership were disillusioned by the Western failure to support them with large-scale economic aid, and were angered and alarmed by the expansion of NATO into the former Warsaw Pact state, which implicitly cast them in the role of the enemy. On the Chinese side, Chesapeake's in the field were beginning to argue that the main threat to their country came no longer from Russia, but from the United States. U.S. 7th Fleet intervened to deter a PRC little missile campaign designed to intimidate the Taiwan Authority. The U.S. and Japan 
find the joint declaration on security. In April 1997, China and Russia expressed for the first time their shared opposition to United States dominance of the post-Cold War scene through a declaration on the trend to a multipolar war and through a declaration on, on the trend to a multipolar world in the establishment of a new international order. And two years later, both powers were enraged simultaneously by NATO's bombing of Serbia over the Kosovo issue. Russia, because it saw itself as the traditional protector of the Serbs, and China, because three of its journalists had been killed in the unintentional NATO bombing of the Chinese embassy in Belgrade. By the time Yeltsin retired at the end of 1999, the foundations were already laid for the Sino-Russian year and a of the next quarter century. Why have the two powers become so closely aligned in the Putin period or era? Because both of them have felt threatened by the West, and in very similar ways. China and Russia aren't revolutionary states in the sense that the Soviet Union are in the 1950s. On the contrary, they're fundamentally traditional and conservative Europeans, which take that in effect, principles championed by the European powers in the 1648 Treaty of Westphalia, unfettered national sovereignty and the right in national governments to do whatever they wish in their own backyards without interference from the outside world. This brings them into collision with the increasingly widespread Western view that national governments are answerable with global tribunals who are treating to their population. It follows that each regime has dense support to the other when the other is threatened by Western or Western-backed forces. China, for example, has followed the policy of sympathetic neutrality towards Putin's war in Ukraine, echoing the Kremlin's line that their campaign in the last two years hasn't been a war but a special military operation, and blaming the conflict as Russia does on the aggressive expansion of NATO in Eastern Europe. While the Russians had consistently voiced their understanding of China's attempts to suppress the West Sea supported separatist elements in Taiwan, Xinjiang, and Tibet. Both the Chinese and Russian regimes have felt threatened additionally by the seepage in the Dirty parties of modern Western values, including not only the concept of democracy and human rights, but also the shift to acceptance of LBBT. And on top of all this, speeches in China and Putin's Russia may seem more and more like a natural fit. The squabbles over the border, which had bedeviled Sino-Russia from the 1960s onwards, were finally declared to be over in 2004, in the session by Russia of a last handful in disputed island territory in the Amur River Valley. The development, model, the development models pursued by the two parts have increasingly converged of Putin has gradually steered Russia closer to the Chinese model of state-sponsored capitalism coupled with stringent political control. The dramatic emergence of China as an economic powerhouse has been balanced by the authority of Russia's kill command on account of its siege nuclear arsenal. And Russia's need for financial support in the face of mounting Western sanctions has drilled with Chinese appetite for Russian oil and gas supplies, which can be delivered to Chinese markets by the safe overland route to Siberia rather than having to be transported by the theories from the ever-volatile Middle East. How do you envision the future of Sino-Russian relations? When Western commentators began, rather slowly, to take note of the increasingly close ties between post-Soviet Russia and China, their general view seemed to be that their rapprochement wouldn't last, that it would all end in tears like the Sino-Soviet honeymoon of the 1950s. Well, that still hasn't happened, and indeed the current sunny period of official relations has now lasted for 30 years, three times as long 
as the June 1950s honeymoon vigorous efforts to be made by both sides to ensure that relations are kept funny and that the breakdown of the 1950s and 1960s is never repeated. It's instructed to consider a number of observations made by prominent Chinese Iraqis over the years. Already in 2011, a professor at the National Defense University in Beijing told the Western visitor, as long as American pressure remains, the Sino-Russian partnership will endure. In an article published in Foreign Affairs in December 2015, Madame Fu Ying, a former Chinese Deputy Foreign Minister, insisted that the Sino-Russian Entente was by no means a marriage of convenience, but was complex, sturdy, and deeply rooted. One of the leading Russian scholars of the relationship, Professor Alexander Lukin, observed in 2018 that the basis of the near alliance was now so strong that any differences could be effectively resolved through the existing mechanism of consultations. But in December 2020, in a telephone call to his best friend Vladimir Putin, President Xi Jinping affirmed that the ties between China and Russia could not now be broken by any third party and could weather all kinds of international turmoil. Contrary to some expectations, the partnership doesn't seem to have been disrupted by the Ukraine war, though some circles in Peking in Beijing did express sharp opposition to the initial invasion. And the CCP have never gone so far as to endorse Russian annexation of the Ukraine. Instead, the Chinese government appeared to be steering a steady course of extending sympathy to the Kremlin, along with a certain amount of non-lethal military aid, while at the same time endeavouring to secure some improvement in their false relations with the United States. It's possible, nonetheless, to detect some seeds of speaker conflict which could potentially germinate over time. One source of friction might well be the enormous shift in economic money between the UK powers. By 2021, Chinese GDP is reckoned by analysts to be eight or ten times that of the Russian Federation. And Russia's own GDP is said to be outstripped by that in Guangdong province alone. China is said to account for 15% of Russia's foreign trade, Russia only 1% of China's. China's interest in Russia is overwhelmingly in Russian energy rather than Russian industrial products. During the early years of the new century, even China's long-standing demand for the Russian weaponry was sharply declining as the PRC started to develop a vast military technology of its own. And since the start of the Ukraine war, the Kremlin said to have sought a considerable range of Chinese military hardware, inserted to air missiles and military reconnaissance drones. While some Russians appeared to take China's overtaking them philosophically, other commentators wondered how long their country would tolerate being reduced to a mere resource appendage of its great eastern neighbour. China's growing supremacy in the economic sphere could also have political implications, as Chinese investments enabled the PCP government to secure a tightening grip on the former Russian dominated borderland. By 2010, the Chinese were said to have gained effective control of outer Mongolia's coal mining industry. By 2017, the PRC was said to account for 65.8% of Mongolian foreign trade. After the fall of the Soviet Union, China and Russia seem to have worked out quite a comfortable modest divinity in the former Soviet ruled republics in Central Asia, with the Russians retaining their influence in political and military matters, while the Chinese concentrated on expanding their business purpose in the Sun. By 2016, however, Beijing was starting to overstep these tacit limits deploying troops and military advisors in one country, Tajikistan, without bothering to seek the Kremlin's approval. And in May this year, with Russia distracted by the Ukraine conflict, Xi Jinping took the opportunity 
to pair a regional summit of decentralizing leaders is a particular focus of security issues. It might well not be easy for a weaker Russia to adjust to your long term to your position to give you a partner. Another potential that ups- and, and please go ahead. Another potential stumbling block is a demographic one. The all too obvious contrast displayed in the Russian Far East, where a Russian population of around six million people faced some hundred and ten million Chinese in the PRC's three Manchurian provinces. Already in the late 19th century, guards of Hedgelsen settlers in the newly acquired Russian territory had been haunted by a nightmare vision of being swamped by Chinese migrants in the south. The PRC re-emerged after Chinese traders and neighbors started to cross the border and get in large numbers at the end of the Soviet area. In one apocalyptic scenario, it's been suggested that in a few decades now, Chinese traders may have turned much of North China into a desert, forcing the inhabitants to push across the border into the Russian Far East and Siberia in search of speed and water. And while this hypothesis seems far-fetched at the moment, at least, far-fetched at the moment, at least one Chinese attempt has already been reported to drain fresh water surreptitiously from Lake Baikal. Population pressure might also have political consequences. The much-comforted settlement of border disputes in 2004 only in practice applied to a number of relatively small points along the border over which conflict had broken out in 1972. No mention was made of the immense 1.5 million square kilometer hinterland of outer Manchuria, which had been detached from the Chinese Empire by Tsarist diplomats in 1858-60, and for which Mao Zedong had once threatened to prevent the bill. The story of the sanitation is still said to be called thought in Chinese sea, and it seems not impossible that some future Chinese government might resuscitate it in support of the desperate come-up the Nathan's from. Finally, there's a broad question of human relations. Back in the 1950s, the interaction between the Soviet and Chinese leadership went from bad to worse. But the dealings which took place with the, gro- the grassroots between Soviet aid personnel in the form of scientists and engineers and their Chinese trainees seems to have been characterized by considerable warmth. Since the fall of the Soviet Union, the picture has been the precise opposite. The leaders of the two countries hug each other, but ordinary people appear to have little contact of any kind. Russians no longer think of China as a backward neighboring country requiring their assistance, while the Chinese no longer look on Russia as an advanced country to be respected and learned from. The leaders on both sides are conscious that their partnership is warm on the outside but cold within. And throughout the year 2006, they've made quite a strenuous effort to thaw out the inside of this political baked Alaska staging a long series of lavish years of China and Russia and years of Russia and China intended to rekindle popular goodwill and interest in the other side's culture. Whether these exercises will have any success in deepening the relationship, only time will tell. On that observation, I would like to thank you very much, Philip Snow, for being so kind to speak with us today. This is Charles Cotillo. You've been listening to New Books and History, a podcast channel on New Books Network. Thank you, Mr. Snow, very much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to talk to you.